Welcome back to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. And a book that I have just realised in the course of revisiting it is totally out of sequence by some years, but it does just fit into the books I've selected for my 30s. After leaving China, we landed back in Brighton. Earlier, I had bought a one-bedroom flat there, which we sold, and along with our savings, we were able to afford a three-bedroom flat on the seafront with a glorious view. Initially, I couldn't find any work in schools. We had come back at the wrong time of the year. So I found myself writing freelance articles for an alternative local paper. This included an article with a druid who claimed to be the real King of England, as he was descended allegedly from King Arthur, and various reviews of some of the more niche-your-own vegan supper-type restaurants popping up in the North Lanes. I eventually got a job for a year on a magazine called Caning and Filling, which Peter naughtily called Caning and Flogging. Both both of us had long-standing ties to Brighton. I'd been to school there and he had regularly visited his grandmother who lived in Hove. It had changed a good deal, most notably in the refurbishment of Churchill Square, which had been a grim, brutalist concrete bunker and was upgraded as we arrived back into the city into yet another plate-glass, shiny-floored shopping hub. For us, young parents at the time, it had two particular attractions. The Lego shop and a huge Borders bookshop with cafe. Borders sold stationery, books, CDs and videos, and later DVDs. It was heaven. The staff, of course, were well versed in the latest retail tricks. I remember finding at the counter both an early Rufus Wainwright CD and my introduction to the wonderful Jennifer Cruzy, of whom more in a few weeks. And it was at Borders that I found my first copy of A Gathering Light, Jennifer Donnelly's third book. I didn't know anything about it, although by the time I came across it, it had been nominated for the Carnegie Book Award and did win it that year in 2003. The thing I now find odd about the book is that although it won the Carnegie and was also nominated as one of the top 10 ever Carnegie winners, When I mention it to fellow English teachers or enthusiastic readers, no one ever seems to have heard of it, either with its English title, A Gathering Light, or its American title, A Northern Light. The title was changed for the English market because of the similarity with Pullman's Northern Lights, which is the subject of next week's reflections. This stuns me. It's an absolutely gripping book, beautifully written, constructed and paced, with utterly memorable characters and a really evocative setting. It is not a comfort book for me in the way that Georgette Hare or Eva Ibbotson are, so it is some time since I've reread it, but this time I golloped the book down as fast as I could before a slower reread in preparation for today's podcast, and I know that I will reread it more regularly in the future. The story is narrated by Matty Goki and covers the months leading up to and just following her 17th birthday. Matty is smart, ambitious and trapped by circumstance and by promises she has made, two major promises both given to women who have subsequently died. Matty is one of the most vivid, vibrant characters I've ever encountered. Her literary ancestors are characters like Anne Shirley, Joe March and Katie Carr, the girls who stand up against the world's judgments, who try to stay true to themselves, who work and persevere. As the book opens in July 1906, Matty is working at the Glenmore Hotel on Big Moose Lake, 
upstate New York in the newly accessible and fashionable Adirondacks. The Glenmore lives on and I do have a yearning to visit it, just as I wish to go and see Prince Edward Island. As the book unfolds, we learn more of Mattie's situation. She is the eldest daughter of a former logger and now farmer and the daughter of the owner of a sawmill. Mattie's mother was educated and refined, but fell in love with Michel Gautier, eloping with him. He becomes Michael Gautier, or Pa, a farmer, and he and Ellen have a son, Lawton, and four daughters. Then Ellen develops breast cancer, dies, and Lawton runs away. Matty is left to hold the family together through the hard winter, trying to juggle a sheer slog of keeping her family clothed, fed, well and on track, and her love of studying, learning and writing. Before she died, Ellen had made her husband promise to keep Matty in school so she could complete her high school diploma, and had made Matty promise to stay and look after the family. This promise has already been compromised by the huge argument between Pa and Lawton. As the book opens, Pa and his four remaining children are still in deep grief. The narrative alternates between both the recent past of the dark months following Ellen's death, Matty's memories of her childhood, and the present in which Matty is working at the Glenmore and being courted by the best-looking boy in the area, Royal Loomis. Dolly Donnelly interweaves Matty's world, her friends and her family, with a true story of the initially mysterious drowning of a young woman who had been a guest at the Glenmore, Grace Brown, who had come to the hotel with her beau, apparently called Carl Graham. The second promise Matty has made is to Grace. Donnelly brings together her fictional heroine with a real young woman who genuinely died in Big Moose Lake in July 1906 and formed the basis of both this novel and Theodore Dreiser's 1925 novel, An American Tragedy. Grace's story is as old as time. Carl is actually called Chester Gillette. He has deliberately used a false name to bring Grace, who is pregnant with his baby, to Big Moose Lake under the pretense of wishing to marry her, when actually he intends to murder her. He knows she cannot swim. He takes her out in a boat, she falls overboard and drowns. But there is a cut on her forehead which suggests that he hit her and left her to founder. In real life, Grace's letters to Chester were found and read aloud in court, playing a major part in his final conviction. But in a gathering light, Grace gives Matty her letters and asks her to burn them. Instead, Matty reads them, and in a way, they change her life. Alongside her growing dread and conviction that Chester Gillette murdered Grace, Matty's own romance with Roy Loomis founders. Their relationship is beautifully drawn, an embodiment of family rivalries, a product of earlier darker incidents and events. Donnelly brings together multiple threads, building the reader's sense of the wrongness of this courtship, even as Matty is entranced by it. Sixteen, never been kissed, conscious that her freckles, brown hair and brown eyes are in no way regarded as pretty by the mores of the time, a little baffled at Royal, who appeared to have been interested in the minister's daughter, Martha Miller, is now paying any attention to her. Matty cannot see as we can that Royal is more interested in her family's land 
than in Matty herself. She is conflicted, entranced by Royal's physical beauty, which conceals from her, initially, his fundamental dullness and moments of outright cruelty. She loves learning books, writing stories, exploring the world opened to her by an inspirational teacher, Miss Wilcox. She earns a scholarship from Barnard in New York. She wants to go. Yet, her promise to her mother, Royal's attractions and attention, and her own deep-seated fear of leaving home conspire to keep her on Big Moose Lake. She glimpses what life with Royal will be like. He is not remotely interested in anything she has to say, but is happy to talk incessantly about corn yields and milking rates, intent on making his fortune through cheese production and selling berries and other produce to the big hotel springing up around the lake. Matty has two best friends, Minnie, now married and pregnant, and Weaver, a proud, ambitious young man who was brought north by his mother, fleeing Mississippi after his father was murdered in front of them. He is the only black boy, not just in town, but in the entire area, the first freeborn boy in his family, and like Matty, has earned a scholarship, in his case to study history and politics at Columbia. Weaver is furious that Matty is tying herself to home thanks to the promise made to her mother, then still more outraged by her engagement to Royal Loomis. But Matty cannot bring herself to break her promise to her mother. She wants a man to look at her the way that Jim Compo, Minnie's husband, looks at his wife, and she recognises that she does not have Weaver's strength, his convictions, or his fearless determination to make the world bend to his will even when this earns him beatings from drunken thugs. The stakes are high for Matty, but little by little, the counterbalance, the arguments for leaving the lake amass. Donnelly writes a brutally realistic scene of Minnie giving birth to twins, then follows it up with a grim depiction of her difficulties in managing the babies and failing to manage her home. Gradually, Matty comes to realise that Royal has never told her that he loves her. He is happy enough to kiss her, to grope her, to give her a small cheap ring, but he never asks her a single question about herself. He gives her a late birthday present, a book. But when she enwraps it, instead of a novel that would show that he has heard her, seen her, understood her even a little, she uncovers a tatty second-hand cookbook, stained and worn. Then Matty reads Grace Brown's final letters, sweet, pleading, sorrowing letters to Chester, who has wooed her and promised her marriage, who has seduced her despite her reluctance and refusals, who has put a baby in her belly but continues to flirt and date other girls, who writes her occasional letters about the fun he is having, who then finally takes her up to Big Moose Lake and out on a boat. Finally, Weaver's home is burned down by trappers with a grudge against him. His mother's livelihood is destroyed, her arm is broken and the savings she has painfully put aside to support him while he is at college, the funds that were meant to pay for his bed and board and books, are stolen. And Weaver must give up his dream of studying humanities and law. This breaks Matty as nothing else has. Her vision of weavers working day in, day out at some menial, low-paid job, his dreams destroyed, his future used up. She can bear this for herself, but she cannot bear it 
for her best friend. The end of the book is swift, and I wish dearly that Donnelly had written a sequel following Matty, Weaver and Miss Wilcox, but the ending is perfect. Matty helps her father pay off the last of his debt for the purchase of a new mule, ensures that Weaver's mother and the vulnerable Emmy Hubbard are safe in their joint home, and makes sure Weaver has enough money for his train fare to New York before catching a ride to the ferry and waiting at the station at Old Forge for a train to New York. There, she boards the train, her old life already in the past, her new life lying open ahead of her to all points south. I taught A Gathering Light to several classes, and I don't remember it failing me or my students. We built our understanding of Matty's world gently, steadily. We discussed the writers she loved and the words she discovers, heading each chapter, and they argued about Matty's choices and Weaver's refusal to accept condescension and outright racism. As with all the best books, it carries worlds within it. It is a wonder, well worth reading and rereading. Join me next week for a look at another book well worth rereading, Northern Lights by Philip Pullman, ostensibly a children's book, but actually a book for anyone with a taste for adventures and Arctic wastes. <laughs>